Hey there. Welcome. After our wonderful two-week break, which I enjoyed immensely, lounging around in the tidal pools of Provincetown, commando style, so as it were, and lots of relaxation. Didn't look at the web or tried not to. Anyway, we're back now, and it's an exciting new season. And one of the topics that we've still got to tackle is this man, Donald J. Trump, who is still lumbering around ominously like off-screen dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. You can just see the water trembling on the, uh, on the surface. And to discuss this, I've asked Michael Wolf, who is, yes, let's, let's say it, the most fun and best chronicler of the insanity of the last four or five years. He has written three now best-selling books that are riveting to read. And I have to say, I've, there's been lots of criticisms, but I have to say, I couldn't put them down. I found them fascinating. And I believe almost all of it. <laughs> and, I, and the stuff I'm not sure I believe I could if I were talked into it. Michael is a long-standing reporter, huge influence, really, on media criticism in the last 20, 30 years, and super bright and super smart and super wicked. And Michael, it's lovely to have you. Thank you for coming on. And thank, thank you, and thank you for that introduction. Michael, we start, I always start, by asking the guests to tell me about a little bit about their childhood and where they come from. How did they come to be doing what they're doing today? Where were you born? I was born in Patterson, New Jersey. My mother was a newspaper reporter. My father was in the advertising business. Mm. And those two things seemed to lead directly to a, a career writing about the media. Did you absorb lots from them on that front? Did they bring it home? Did they talk about oh, it? Did completely, you... completely, absolutely. And I mean, so my mother worked for a daily newspaper in Patterson in which I was always in the newsroom. I knew everyone in the newsroom. It was, it had a kind of a newspaper sitcom feel. And my father was in the advertising business. He owned his own agency. So he was always sort of, we were always rich and poor from week to week, getting clients, losing clients. So, so yes, it was intimately involved. I was intimately involved. Their children were intimately involved in all of their professional issues. What did you read growing up? What was most attracted you in terms of books as you wrote? Is it like as a kid or as a teenager and, and that influenced you and maybe pointed you in this direction? I, I mean, I, I was came of of age. I think at a particular moment, which was influential, important to me, because it was a moment when a certain kind of journalist came was the the most current, the the, the forefront of all of writing. So whether it was Tom Wolfe and I mean the New York Magazine crowd, Tom Wolfe, Dick Schaap, Breslin, or the Esquire crowd, Gay Talese, Michael Herr, the New Yorker, I mean Truman Capote at the New Yorker. I mean, so that whole moment, which, which seems to be called the new journalism, although yeah, I think it probably has longer antecedents than that, was the, was the thing that I most wanted to do. I mean, those are the voices that were for, in the forefront of my mind then, and, and in a way still are. Although in, in some respects, I think I find myself as, the, as perhaps the last practitioner of that kind of journalism. And it's right, you, you use that word voices, and that is what they had, very distinct individual voices that, that brought you into the stories that they were telling. And I wish I could read more of that in today's journalism, but those glory days of those magazines seem to be gone forever. Yeah, no, and it's part, yeah, I mean, it's partly because it was magazine journalism and there are no magazines now. So it's an easy um, end. Yeah. Do you miss that? Do you miss magazines? Oh, t oh, ter uh, terribly. I mean, I, I mean, the best job I ever had was at was at New York Magazine, writing the column about the media on a weekly basis. The response was incredible. The range of what you could write about was was fantastic. And the you know, there was that that New York Magazine kind of tabloid, sort of Jewish tabloid style was fit my voice perfectly. In fact, this was Clay Felker. 
Oh, no, this was sort of, this was the 90s and through till uh, about, you know, 2005 or six. So it was Caroline Miller was there for actually all of that time. So, but that was just the perfect, I think when you look back on your career and you think, well, what's the perfect job? And since uh, most jobs are not perfect and flawed to greater or lesser extents, but maybe there is one that had most of the things going for it that you would want in a job. And that for that, for me, that was that moment in time. Were you in the office a lot? Was there a kind of bonding experience in the office or, or were you more? Yeah, I was writer? in the office. Well, I was, I, I was, I've always written at home, but it was always a fun office to go into. And you could sort of go from office to office and, and get your, and get this Phil, this Phil, Simon Domenko, who was mostly my editor was in one office, John Homans, a fantastic editor who died this past year. Yeah, um, what a great uh, Car- Caroline Miller. Yeah. So this was, I mean, for me, this was, just just the perfect time. And then, in fact, I when New York Magazine was being sold, I was tried to put together a group to buy New York Magazine. And then when that didn't work, it turned out I had to fall on my sword and leave and then went to Vanity Fair, uh, which was never as much fun. So how did this unlikely journey end with Trump? Now, you, you just had the idea, right, that I'm going to go and see if I can just report what's going on in the White House. You just showed up one well, day. Well, I'll, I'll give you some of the particulars. It's never, I mean, I mean there are always things, and that's this sort of a, a journalism piece that that I, I think is a, a light seldom shines on, that it's a lot of coincidence. It's being at the right place in the right time and being lucky. So this goes back to March of 2016, and I am walking through the Orlando airport on my way to give a speech. For some reason, most well-paid speeches in America are given in Orlando, at Disney World. Um, and uh, so I'm in the airport and pulling my bag and somebody, I see a guy who looks at me, looks me right in the eye and he seems, he recognizes me, he seems delighted to see me, drops his bags and comes and hugs me. Now, I, I mean, I've seen, I mean, this has happened to me, and, Enough times that you think, okay, I don't recognize this person, but I will in a second recognize this person. Yes. But I did. So you're um, bluffing for a bit. You're bluffing for a bit. And yeah, then what so, happens? Yeah. It, it? It, just didn't, it just didn't come to me at all. And so he went off. I mean, he said, you've been doing great work and all, I mean, all this stuff. So he clearly knew me or seemed to know me. And then he... And then anyway, then we said goodbye and we w- went in different directions. And I didn't think too much about it for too long. But about a month later, I saw in an article about Breitbart, and, and there was a picture, and I thought, oh my God, that was the Breitbart guy who uh, stopped me in the Orlando airport, Stephen K. Bannon, a name I, I don't think I had ever heard until seeing that, that moment. Now, subsequently, I was to find out that I've had this in the set of perplexing relationships I've had for most of my career, I've had a very, I've had a long and good relationship with Roger Ailes. And Ailes had spoken of me to Bannon, and that was the nexus of that, or the explanation for that meeting in Orlando. Anyway, flash forward, he takes, in August 2016, he takes over the Trump campaign and I thought, well, if he thinks um, I'm his friend, I'll be his, uh, you know, um, uh, I'll call him and and be his friend, and uh, which I did. And he said, yes, come up to Trump Tower anytime, which I did immediately. And, and we got to talking. And then I wrote the, really the first profile about him, which he liked. And so I, I kind of found myself in this, as th- that there was an open door there. And I had known Trump from my New York magazine days, he would call me up when I was at the magazine, usually to complain about not being in one story or another. And I I found him perfectly amusing. I had no real opinion of of him other than he was a vulgarian, an amusing vulgarian. So anyway, I I got an opportunity to write a a piece about him during the campaign. At that point, he liked it or, or he liked it. He was in The Hollywood Reporter and and he wrote me a note, and it was a cover story, and the note was, cool cover. So I assume he didn't read it. He just liked the picture of himself. 
at any rate, I'm assuming that he's not going to be the president of the United States. This is all going to go south. But of course, it does not. So at that point, I think, okay, and I call Bannon and I say, what if I were to come into the to the White House and, and, and write a book about the first 100 days? This um, was after the election? Yes. So he'd, he'd couple, won. Couple you, of, yeah, a couple of days after the election. And then said, you, well, you did not anticipate him winning. You actually no, thought Hillary no, would win. To, totally, him. completely. I was as flabbergasted as anybody. And Bannon said, well, you got to ask, you got to ask, speak to Trump. So we went upstairs to speak to Trump. And I said, what if I come up sitting? I can see Trump sitting there behind the desk. And I say, what if I came in? I'd like to come in as, as an observer. And, and he clearly thought that was a job. An official job you know. at the new White House? Yes, he's a first assistant observer. I don't know. Yeah, it was like, and then I said, no, I'd, I'd like to write a book. And then as soon as I said the word book, it was clear he was not interested in this. It was just didn't care. He said, yeah, whatever. I remember this too. Yeah, yeah, whatever. And uh, so I left with Bannon and Bannon said, well, that's pretty much yes. And <laughs> Pretty much, yes. It's a chaotic element to all this that is truly hilarious in, in retrospect, right. but also also terrifying, of course. So, totally. So I just literally on January, I think, 22nd, showed up at the White House. I mean, I mean, so I, so I, I told Bannon I was coming. Bannon puts my name into the system. And then you're you sort of it's an open door and you're in the White House or in the West Wing sitting there. And that went on pretty much every day or multiple times a week for the next seven months. So that's well, um, my origin story. Tell me, because this is, I mean, we've all struggled to understand this man. And at some level, he seems sort of comic. At another level, he seems banal. At another level, he seems absolutely terrifying. What's it like to meet him? What is he like in person and, and as you've observed him? I mean, is, have you met anybody like this before? No, no. And, I, and I, I, that's an important, a really important point. He is not like you or I or anyone you or I know. So he may be entirely unique. But, but what he is among all of those things, all of those things that you said, he is those things. But first and foremost, he's off his rocker. And I use off his rocker as a kind of, as a term of art. I mean, his reality is only his reality. And I have never seen this. Never, ever have I seen someone whose bubble is so circumscribed and so particular and so unaware of what is outside that bubble and unconcerned of what's outside that that bubble so and that that comes clear as as soon as you're in his presence for more than five minutes you think okay this is this is an exceptional circumstance he's not hearing anything that i'm saying or anything else that anyone is saying i mean he's just broadcasting and broadcasting from only inside himself. There's almost no other information that comes into this. And, and I remember those first months of being in the White House, everybody it was a peculiar situation because most people get into the, most presidents come to the White House with a, with a staff they've worked with for a long time. I mean, they've gone through the wars with, they've run a, a presidential campaign and usually campaigns before that. And, but the truth about Trump is that he knew nobody in politics. I mean, his really two political connections were Chris Christie in New Jersey and Giuliani in, in New York. Other than that, he didn't know anybody. So almost everybody, even Bannon, he, he really only gets to know from the, the August before the election. So really, he's known him only for a matter of weeks. So he enters the White House with all of the people there. They don't know him. It's all new for everybody. And so what I witnessed was everybody coming to terms with the fact, this fact, this obvious fact that he was a crazy person, that this was an exceptional situation. And I remember that they used to, you know, many, the, the particular paradigm that everybody had to come to terms with is that first thing he didn't read anything literally nothing i mean zero so if you're the president of the united states probably the most information intensive job 
or one of the most information intensive jobs on earth. You can't get written nothing. Information cannot get through to him in a written form. And then they said, that's a problem, but it's a compounded problem because he doesn't listen either. Um, right. So therefore, there was no way to get in, no traditional way to get information to him. Now, you could recycle it through through the television, and that was one way to one way to do it. If you were watching Fox and you wanted to get a piece of information to him, and you worked directly for him, you would find a guest to go on Fox News exactly, to say something exactly. like that. To put it in, this is a kind of remarkable situation, probably unique, right? I mean, I mean, it, and again, because there's nothing external to him that he is prepared to submit to as an informative or authoritative source of any kind, apart from what he wants it to be. Exactly. I mean, I remember this so the first day thinking, if I met someone like this, this is what I thought, if I met someone that kept insisting, for example, like that first day, that the crowd was bigger than Obama's, even though we could see with our own fucking eyes that it was smaller, and then mandated that be said to the public, which we knew not to be true, if I came across someone like that, I would slowly edge my way out of a room and find a way to get back to some sane people. But this man is running the whole country from that. Totally. Point. And in fact, that's what most of the people do. The attrition rate in his White House is vastly higher than any other modern White House. And that's true about all of the people there. That every, I mean, I mean it's almost singularly, everyone was confused, appalled, horrified, and bewildered about what to do, except finally to get out. And, and, I mean, I, I think one of the interesting things is that, or one of the silver linings is that a person like this, I mean, a person who has no agenda, no beliefs, no interests, no no intent, no goals, not, I, mean, I mean, isn't ultimately going to do all that much either. And he doesn't do all that, that, that much. Essentially, his four years in the White House is, is spent letting Republicans on the Hill do what they want to do, and him spending as little time in the office as he can, and all that time is spent by his staff bringing in delegations to heap flattery upon him. And then, he, in turn, he heaps flattery on them, and then he um, leaves the office. And that's literally the Trump presidency for except, four years. Except, of course, and this is where we we get into really interesting areas because he he didn't just leave the office he 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 tried to stay in office and when you recount the night of the election uh and you just see his absolute denial that it could ever be the case that he lost now i'm trying to think this through because from to my my best bet about this is he really didn't doesn't believe he lost that he persuades himself that it was inevitable. That I, I can I can absolutely guarantee this, that he absolutely, categorically, de with maximum derangement, believes that he won the election. And to understand that, that it's even harder to understand the, the derangement when you understand the circumstances of it is that everyone around him, to a man, 100% of the professionals around him and the family that surrounds him, all of these people understood he had lost the election and that there was no way he could do nothing to change that outcome. So everybody knows this except Trump himself and and because he is demented in his own way, Rudy Giuliani. Right. Yes. And that's what that would be interesting enough. What's the other dynamic of this is that he is such a powerful politician such a powerful demagogue, that it is still the case that this absurd view, this deranged internal view, is believed by a clear, quite big majority of Republican voters. How does he pull that Absolutely. Out? And I, I think it's important to, to also add to this, it is believed by none of the of his allies in the Republican Party. I mean, those are all... any Anybody who's at a level... At any kind of um, level of political professional understands that this is pure folly and ridiculousness. I mean, but it was more than that, wasn't it? It was dangerous. It was actually how dangerous you think it was. I mean, he clearly. Well, I don't attempted. think. I, I, I actually, I actually don't think it was dangerous. I okay. mean, 
that, and this is part of the delusion, it, it wasn't that he had somehow suborned the government of the United States and the executive branch. Everybody was very clear about what had happened here, that he had lost the election, and now he was going to act out and... and Many hope come to terms with this. But this was a belief and a perception and a campaign of one, plus Rudy. Plus quite a large mob on January the 6th. And then, uh, yes, and then, yeah, which asks that, uh, which is the other thing, uh, because, yeah, yes, there are millions of people who, who actually, who know nothing about politics and who care very little about politics, but who subscribe to this, to, to the view that he had. So, so and, and I can't explain it, that. Do you think that he, on that day, really believed that he could stop Pence certifying the election and somehow maneuver to have it, absolutely. have the results over time? He believed that. Absolutely. And went back and forth. And I mean, I've gone over this with the Pence people many times and in their incredulity, because at every point, in every way possible, short of punching him in the face, they say, this is not going to happen. And he then, it's as though that meeting, that those statements and, and that meeting where this is conveyed never happened. I, and this, this could happen in, in the space of the same day. A clear meeting, this is not going to happen. There's no rationale for this. No, no, the vice president isn't going to do this or the vice president himself are going in a methodical way through the, through all the reasons why this is not going to happen. And two hours later, he begins the discussion again as though that never happened before. And this goes literally right into the into the afternoon of January 6th when thousands of people are storming the Capitol and the vice president is, I mean, quite possibly the vice president's life is in peril. It, 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 again, when you think about it, it's really hard to absorb. This is a president that went out there in a speech in front of a mob that was going to go to the Capitol, denouncing Pence and saying this crowd could maybe make the difference in persuading him or showing them that they meant they were serious about it. In any other circumstance, that is such an extraordinary crime. I mean, it's such a high crime that we would that this would have been the natural end of all of it. It's as if it came to that it, crisis. It, this delusion it, 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 would, it would have, but you, you have to understand that... You know, this is not a person, and nobody around him sees him as this per this person. Anyone who has ever had any interaction with him can't reasonably see him as this person who has a, a plan and an agenda and a goal. Even when he goes out and speaks to people, it's just blah blah that comes out of his mouth. It just is not processed. He does not. He's hardly aware of what he's saying when he says to the crowd, "I'm going to walk with you to the Capitol." Um, and then, and then he comes off the stage and the Secret Service is going, what did he say? And, and his own people are saying, what? He, he said, what? And, you know, and, they, and the, 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 the sort of the punchline is everyone saying, Donald Trump has never walked anywhere. Um, <laughs> and, and then they come off and they say, listen, you can't do that because, and, and he says, do what? And, and they said, well, you said you're going to walk to the Capitol. And it's like, I did? Oh, well, I didn't mean that literally. Um, so it's so every, literally... Every the, yeah, so it's it's just everything. Blah, blah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, he just please. won't stop, and it, it's entirely self-generated. And it, it's a truly—I mean, it is meant. It's—it's it's a form of mental illness. It has to be a form of mental illness, or is that being too diagnostic? A psychological disorder, some supreme yeah, level I, of I mean, narcissism. Yeah, well, I don't know. I just know that it is different from the way we, you and I function, or anyone we know functions, because right. we don't have that thing. We're kind of, you know, dependent at some level. On the response of other people, on the it, you know, we have we have a, a, a communications mechanism. We pick up, we recognize when something's is something is off, or when someone is going to think that we're off. Not so in this, in this case. Is this a function of he's just sort of the way he was born? There's some sort of genetic makeup that he has, or is it? Um, this is not mutually exclusive. Or is it also the fact that he never was told no by anybody? I mean, he was the well, he was the uh, yes. scion um, and just lived this life in which everything he wanted was eventually done, in which he never had to truly, really negotiate with equals or peers in any way. Am I... Uh, uh, 
I, yes, absolutely. But then add a couple of more things to, the, mm-hmm. to this, that, that he learned the value of hyperbolic self-promotion. So you know, everything was an illusion. And then add to that, he became an actor, a star, a huge star. So re- really the, 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 the kind of person that he is closest to is, is there an actor who was accustomed to everybody listens and everybody goes out of their way to let the actor be the actor. And especially when the actor is successful. So you just want them to keep doing what they're doing, even if it's crazy. Um, and that's why all and, these actors after a while go crazy themselves. There's no way of, unless yes, they have exactly. extraordinary temperament ability to sort of measure that and to calm that. So he, he'd been sort of fed a lifetime of celebrity of no consequences for doing or saying all sorts of crazy shit. No consequences actually for him almost bankrupting his entire company because he bankrupted the banks to such an extent they had to bail him out in some kind of way, at least not kill him because they would have destroyed their own bank uh, balance sheets at the same time. So he, there was never a moment I thought, well, if this has never been the case with him, if he's always squeaked out, surely this is going to happen with the election too. This is one of these external checks that if it comes against him, he cannot accept. And it turns out that's true. He just has not accepted that he lost this election. No, and to this day, I mean, so when I did this on the third book, Landslide, peculiarly, extraordinarily, he invites me to come down to Mar-a-Lago. Now, I mean, make me remember, after the first book, he tried to sue me, denied he ever knew me, I was the worst person et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, really, for a period, I was the Trump enemy number one. But so he, somebody who I've been speaking to, and I kind of spoke, have continued to speak to the, all of the Trump people over four years, and somebody who was still around him, who I was talking to, tells him that I'm doing this third book. And it was kind of told as a warning. But Trump immediately said, and this was relayed back to me, Trump said, Oh, that guy gets ratings. Let's see him. So suddenly I'm invited to Mar-a-Lago as though I'm the long lost best friend. And we sit down and, and he's right into the stolen election again. As, and it's as visceral as though it had happened the night before. And he, if you, well, we'll get into this in a second, but but the slogan he's going to run on is stop the steal, end the steal, right? He's, this is not a subject that he's going to say, well, it was good to move for a bit, but he can't move on from it. It will be, if he runs again, it will be a crux of his campaign. Absolutely. And he has managed to not only weaponize that, but weaponize the whole election process. Um all of this that's going on now in at the forefront of, of frequent news cycles, this changes in, in voting laws and efforts by Republicans to do this and all that. It's important to recognize that has always gone on, that there has always been a, a push-pull on the part of both parties to move election regulations and laws to the advantage, to to each party's advantage. That has always gone on. And many people would argue that it is always zero sum. But the interesting thing is that Trump saw this, somehow understood this as an issue, which has always been there, kind of like immigration, that he could uniquely weaponize. Right. And this gets to the question which has dogged me and which I still do not have a good resolution in my head about. Like, how dangerous is this man? Was this just performance art that really we overestimated as dangerous? I mean, this is the president of the United States saying sorts of things that were truly would have been, been normal for a dictator or, or normal, the kind of outrageous claims. And combined with this unbelievably belligerent personality that really wants to destroy anybody that that comes up against him. At the same time, also incompetence and and inability to understand how you would affect such a a coup, if if you want to call it that, or at least a gumming up of the constitutional process. I was terrified from the beginning that he could truly break the American system of government. And I think to some extent, he's definitely broken bits of it. But uh, where do you stand on that? If he were to be reelected in 2024, which looks, well, we'll talk about it in a second, but which I, but to me looks quite not completely out of the possibility at all at this point, I don't think. 
how dangerous, how worried should we be about this man? Well, again, and it's really important to understand, there's no agenda here, or the only agenda is for his, for to be at the center of attention for his own aggrandizement and his own, um, you know, he's an actor. He just needs, needs the audience. But policy-wise, does he have any real interest? Not, none, none whatsoever. Does, if you, if he had to map out a campaign to get something accomplished, he could not do this. And he can't, he can't even listen to the people mapping it out for him. So one of the, one of the kind of interesting things is to see him, and I've seen this when, you know, people come in, and especially this was with the generals, they come in with PowerPoint. He can last two minutes in the room when someone puts up a PowerPoint. He just can't absorb it. He becomes in pain. You can just see the body moving. It's in a kind of resistance, physical resistance he puts up to anyone trying to give him any kind of information. So again, that's a sort of a, a silver lining. He's not interested in accomplishing anything. Um, but my you know, worry he's is interested that- in. My worry is that yes, he is good at building, yes. he's, he's not good at building things. He, I mean, he couldn't even build his bloody wall. I mean, that, that thing became a joke. It was the key element of his election campaign. He had it, and he didn't even bother for two years to even fund it. And then funded it, of course, by unconstitutional, weird moving around, declaring of emergencies and, uh, sure. and, and, and grabbing congressional funds when he had no right to, et cetera. So my concern is not that he'll build something, but he'll break everything. That, in other words, he'll break the confidence of Americans in their electoral system. You that know, he will I, I, break yes, the ab- balance of power and the checks and balances. That he will violate basic core principles of zero, non-zero-sum engagement, which allows this country to function as liberal democracy. And in the process, he's my absolutely fear. yes. Okay, yeah, and yes. then he's also. Um, but that's a different. Please, sorry. Oh, then he also has become this extraordinarily potent, let's say, reagent for the far left, which finds in him a sort of distillation of everything they fear about what the American people really are and what America really is. So he also radicalizes the other side, while he also creates in his own side a willingness to believe the unbelievable. This is this is not gaining anything. It's not building anything. It's not policy oriented. It's just a force of destruction. So, which is why you have to see him as, why it's bad to see him as a as a right-wing agent, why it's bad to see him as a person with carrying the far-right agenda and all of that stuff. And because then you move it into the world of process, and he is essentially the person outside, outside of process, breaking the process in effect, because he's a crazy person. So you have everybody has to respond to him because he's crazy. And that's what's going on. He becomes the absolute focus of everyone's attention because he is crazy, because he's you don't know what he's going to do. You don't know why he's going to do it. You can't map out cause and effect with Donald Trump. You can't find a central logic to the mission of Donald Trump. He is uh, just a disruptive force because he is crazy. But let's take another part of him, which I think is not to be underestimated, that then, which presumably this is quite new for him. The experience of rallying the crowd, those extraordinary rallies. This is a man that hasn't been in the past used to addressing vast throngs of people. He's been on TV, which is a different kind of communication. He seemed to come alive in the classic sense of the demagogue who really understands how to manipulate, build off sense from a crowd, manipulate the emotions, create what was obviously a sort of semi-religious experience from the people in those stadiums that just built their loyalty to him and their sense of unification around themselves. That's, are you surprised he had that talent? Because it was not clear to me that he had it. No, I'm not. If you see him as an actor, what is an actor driven by? An actor is driven by the need for attention, the need to hold the audience, the need to get that feedback from an audience. And if you 
look at those performances, I mean, they're kind of extraordinary. Number one, because they're largely incoherent, especially if you read them. And what he does is he goes out onto the stage and he begins to riff and he's throwing out things. He's throwing out stuff and there's a lot of stuff that that falls flat. Nobody doesn't respond to because it's kooky and and nobody knows what he's talking about. But then he will hit something that the crowd responds to. And then he will repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And that's the thing. I mean, I remember the time when when he hit on, you know, taking a knee. I mean, he didn't have that prepared. That was just, he was just literally in in the television of his mind. He kind of casts around for something that he's heard and then throws it out. And then it works, it works remarkably. So he is he, it's, it's like a one-man focus group live, and he finds it, and then he hits it. But there is no—if if you look at these things, there is no point to these speeches. He's not going anywhere. He's not leading the crowd anywhere. Yeah, so, I mean, it's even—although it's, I think, to everyone with, with any amount of sensibility kind of extraordinary, it's even more extraordinary than that because it, it doesn't—none it, it, of it makes any sense. Let me ask you to put your two areas of expertise and brilliance, you can call it, the media and Trump. He had, well, tell me what you think happened over four years. Did he win? Did the media win? Did they both lose? Uh, no, I think that he won. And, and I think the media, I mean, my view of the problem with the media is that they could never that they could never explain him. They could never explain him to themselves. And political reporters are a are a process-oriented group of people. I mean, that's what they do. What is it to write about politics? It's to write about cause and effect. Everything happens for a reason. Everybody has a goal. Everybody, it's all transactional. Everybody wants something. And so that's what you're, that's the discipline that you bring to trying to, trying to write about and understand Donald Trump. He is the president of the United States and he must be the president of the United States for a set of reasons. He wants something. He wants power for himself which by the way, he does not particularly want. He wants, he has an agenda that he needs to get accomplished, which he did not have. He has to do the following to get reelected, which never was a two and two equation for him. And you can't say, the New York Times cannot say the president of the United States is a crazy bugger. I mean, there, there is not even the language in, in the, the modern institutional media language to describe who this man is and why this man is and why he has come about. Right. And so they kind of imputed things. They also, I think because of the, and this this is the shift in the class-based origin of the media, where she's now almost entirely upper middle class, almost entirely college educated, or in some cases, graduate educated, had no idea that his actual arguments were persuasive and resonant with lots of people on things like trade, on things like immigration. When he says things like, if you don't have borders, you don't have a country, all they hear is xenophobia. But what I heard, and it might be, and I just why I thought he was going to win in the first place, I could sense that he was tapping into questions that the establishment had deemed for a long time undiscussable. It's like the most, one of the most amazing moments in that campaign was when he took on Jeb Bush by saying, don't tell me your brother kept this country safe. Uh, don't tell me he didn't fuck up these wars massively. That was a huge break from elite understanding and elite deference in the Republican Party to the legacy of Bush. So part of the media's problem, they couldn't understand because they couldn't understand the people he was relating to because they've lost increasing touch with most people in America outside their own elite bubble. It was like one crazy bubble met another bubble, and it was mutual incomprehension. Absolutely. And remember that his, remember, he's not really leading that, that leading in that bubble and leading those people. He's following. He is really looking for, Mm. in a media context, it's not, we don't want to have to convince people. We want to, we want to, we want to feed them what they've already convinced themselves of. You want to, he's a salesman. You want a salesman always wants to sell what's easiest to sell. And he was very good at finding that, that thing, partly because of those rallies. 
There it was in real time, 40,000 people in front of him. What are they interested in? And you just say the words and they respond. Right. Um, Who did worst in covering him? Was it CNN or was it the New York Times or, 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 uh, no, I, I, no, I, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone, I think everybody did what they could do. I, I don't really fault it. I just, I mean, what I find is that they just don't have the tools that were really necessary to get to the heart of this character. Because fundamentally, remember, they're not interested in character. They're interested in process and procedure and, and political when, result. This is a moment when the new journalism of your youth actually would have been very helpful because it would have yes, enabled us uh, yeah, to have a better totally. sense of this person, this personality, this weird psychology that had propelled him forward. At the same time, what do you make of the current New York Times? What do you make of it? How is it different than you think oh. it was like five years ago? How has Trump affected it? Because in some, we, we certainly know that the, the polling shows that the collapse in trust in media has accelerated quite fast around 2016 and is now at pretty rock bottom. And yet at the same time, the New York Times is actually a very successful newspaper at this point, selling subscriptions to people who want to read the narrative that they want to tell them. So is is that a gain or a loss? Yeah, its business model has changed and its business model has become, instead of a a general interest newspaper, a such thing basically does not exist anymore. It has become a target target marketing enterprise. It looks for, it sells to people, I'm not not in some, some sense, not dissimilar from Trump himself. It sells to people who are, who are of its own persuasion. And that persuasion is increasingly how, whatever words we want to, we want to apply to it and trying not to use the woke word, et cetera, et cetera. Compare compare that approach to say Rupert Murdoch's. I mean, you have plenty, I mean, it seems to by the end of the first term, certainly Murdoch had a certain amount of contempt for Trump. And certainly when the attempt to talk him into fiddling with Fox News' reporting on election night, for example. That didn't seem to work. Fuck him, I think, was <laughs> what you reported yeah. instead about it. How did Murdoch yeah, I mean, view Trump? How does Murdoch, you know, view Trump? How does he view Trump? Murdoch, Murdoch, I mean, Murdoch can't stand Trump, has nothing but contempt for Trump. So I am Murdoch's biographer, so I spent an enormous amount of time with Murdoch. And some, to- some of that time, because curiously, when I was spending time with him, Murdoch's then wife, Wendy, had become very friendly with Ivanka and Jared. And that, that was, you know, Mur- Murdoch was tolerant of, of that and seemed to like Jared because Jared seemed to like older men and accord them a certain degree of deference. But Murdoch couldn't stand Trump. Well, I mean, it was, this was a laughable idea to him. And um, So here's my question, and you're the best person on earth to answer this. And so Rupert Murdoch knows that this is a, a fraud, an idiot, contemptible person. He runs a network that did more than anything else to prop this person up to an extent of almost ludicrous propaganda and continues to do so. What? I mean, is there any moment at which Rupert Murdoch asks himself, should I do this for the sake of the Republic? Or is it entirely about money? Is there it's, anything it's, else? Yes. I, well, it's entirely about money. It's entirely about management or the limitations of management you know to so say that Rupert Murdoch runs Fox is kind of a misnomer he 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 owns the lion's share of it and he has ultimate control but that's a lot different from day to day you know Rupert Murdoch doesn't really know much about the television business for instance he can do anything with a newspaper television which he doesn't even watch is is still remains an arm's length concept for for this 90 year old man 91 and when he's put his son in and his son is it's not it's hard pressed to to assume a leadership role and remember so fox news up until the summer of 2016 was run absolutely by roger ailes nobody else was involved in running that very top down ailes goes and there's no other the only point the only North Star then becomes Trump himself, which was always curiously one of those things that Ailes always counseled against. Don't let the Republican Party run Fox. 
let Fox run the Republican Party was basically his his view. But that changes. And suddenly the Fox audience and the Trump audience become as though one. And Trump is on the phone with all of the evening anchors and he's basically running the show. Now, why doesn't Rupert stop that? Because he doesn't know how to, for one. Because Fox News has become a kind of rump asset for the Murdoch family. You know, remember in 2018, they sell off almost the entire company, partly because Murdoch's children are so divided over the issue of Trump and Fox that he he doesn't really have a clear successor anymore. So he sells off all, everything that he can and is left only with the assets that Disney can't take either because of because of competition rules or because they don't want the controversy that 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 attaches to Fox. Hmm. So Rupert has this v- very profitable asset and it's worth an enormous amount of money, but there's an end game to this. It's not he's not going he and his family are not going to continue to run this. He because he's old, his family because they're divided, and because it doesn't even fit the Murdoch business model. It's now a mid-sized media company when he is only believed in vast scale. Right. Is Trump going to run again? Absolutely. And that is my conviction. I, I I was on, believe it or not, because of my my book, uh, the Michael Cohen podcast. Now, this is what Michael Cohen said to me, and he's rather winning. I must say, I was kind of disarmed by that dude. He's a very appealing kind of Brooklyn act. I mean, all the rest of it. But sure, sure. he said the following, and this is an argument, that in fact, Trump knows somehow deep within him that he can't win again, that he's not going to win again. He couldn't bear the humiliation of being proven that he lost twice he wants to maintain the illusion that he was deprived this election. He's the rightful president and have all that sort of behind him, but doesn't actually want to do it again and fears that if he were to do it and fail, it would obliterate his current standing and would hurt his ego that way. And so we'll pull out at some last minute. I don't buy that, but I want to know why you don't well, buy that. Well, let me, let, me, let me deconstruct that in a okay. couple of ways. Trump can't continue to be Trump if he is not potentially president. The role, his role has now changed. He is the once and future president. That That is the assigned role. If he gives that up, that gives other people, other people then get ahead of him. They're more important than he is. He has to ha- have a different kind of relationship with them. And that that kind of relationship is too complex. He can't become an elder statesman. It, it, he, he just, he's more one-dimensional than that. So he doesn't really have an, an option except to run. And, and, it's a, and it's a pretty easy field for him at least for the next several years. And, and also remember, Trump deals with increments of time, sometimes merely seconds, minutes. He lives in the moment. So, so there's no reason at this moment to consider defeat and no ability in his long-term mind, because he doesn't have a long-term mind, to think through to an eventual defeat. Having said that, he will be defeated. I mean, one of the reasons that he that he lost in this past election was because he ran the literally the worst campaign ever run by an incumbent. And I, I mean, at the in in August, what three months before the election, he's he's overspent his budget by two hundred million dollars in the hole. They go into the last three weeks of the campaign and he's outspent by the challenger three to one. I mean, people are just stealing money right and left because he can't control it. He, he, no level is he a competent manager. And a presidential campaign is a very difficult management challenge. Now, he got to be president in 2016 because Hillary Clinton somehow ran an even worse campaign. But, you know, those are, yeah, and, and I suppose that could happen again. Michael, let me push back again. Like, they didn't do too badly. They did a lot better than a lot of people anticipated. He, I mean, really, it was not that big a blowout against him, despite an extraordinary record of insanity, sort of insanity. Uh, so there's something there, uh, isn't there? Yes, no, I, absolutely. But I would almost flip that around mm-hmm. and say that's that indication of such strength in the face of such of, of disasters every day should have meant that they should have won this campaign. 
They right. did not win this campaign just because at every moment they did the wrong thing. And, um, so you know, and so, in some, some world, if he had competence, he could have won, but he, that not in the world that we live yes. in and not with his crazy uh, psyche. And But wouldn't that be good then if he were to run and lose? Isn't that the only way we're going to get rid of this guy if he runs and loses again? There's no way the Republican Party seems able to cut him loose until that happens. I think that is probably true. Yes. Mm. Yes. I, I mean, at some, so, point, at some point, someone in the Republican Party is going to realize just what a massively missed opportunity these years have been. I think of the way that Boris is, is working the new sort of Tory nationalism in Britain and trouncing the left. And, and I could see the potential for that happening in the United States if they didn't have a completely crazy person at the top of the ticket. Um, I think it's more confusing for them. I mean, I think that the Republican, the leadership of the Republican Party is, remains totally confused about who, about what the Republican Party has become. And, and the only thing that they sort of have going for them is that Donald Trump has, has, is able to channel this new Republican Party. And he doesn't demand much from, he humiliates them and and causes them kind of endless personal woe and embarrasses them but really doesn't interfere with the republican the traditional quite right wing but not but not furthest right wing republican agenda and so Mitch McConnell gets to do his thing pr pretty much without having to even much consult the the president of the United, or the former president of the United States who he hated is there any Republican at the leadership that doesn't feel, that doesn't believe this man is a complete lunatic that you talk no. to? No, everybody thinks. I mean, they translate that into, well, he's Donald Trump. But when they say that, they mean, well, he's a lunatic. <laughs> it's a staggering fact that the, and that this, this attempt to keep this up now for another three or four years, right? They're going to have to keep behaving like this what happens when another candidate emerges if another candidate were to emerge that he destroys like DeSantis. do you think DeSantis has any anybody out there no i mean i don't think i mean it's one of the things it's one of the mysterious accomplishments of donald trump because he has turned this into something that is outside of politics so it right. is not as though some another politician can come along and saying, I have better ideas and I am more electable and the following. But it's pure tribalism at this point, right? And he is the tribal leader and he has been humiliated by the enemy in the last election and he requires revenge and vindication. And so that is what's going to be the theme. My, my concern is this, Michael. Look, he didn't do that badly in 2020. You can see the Biden presidency falling off the tracks. You begin to see some of that happening. He's also, unlike Trump, he, he's, he seems to be mortal, that, he's, that in three years' time, the state of Biden is not going to be. And I, if you can imagine Kamala Harris running against Trump, I, I just don't know who would win. I wouldn't. I, I absolutely, I, I would just urge you to think about the other dimension. This is mm -hmm. a complicated process. But Trump can, he is a one-trick pony. He can do rallies for mm -hmm. lots and lots of people and mm -hmm. thereby get lots of people excited. And that is one thing. And it's not an insignificant thing. It's, it can be a big and powerful thing. But, in it, but he, can't, he can't do all of the other stuff. He can't organize. He can't raise money. Or quite the opposite. He, he, the need to raise money is so great because he totally looks at the top line that they spend $1.35 to raise a dollar. So Trump management is, is, is not just flawed. It's a joke. It's a catastrophe. It's, he just does not have the abilities, and especially when you put him in the position of being the sun god and he believes that he has all of the expertise he can he, he, there's never going to be a moment in which you produce an effective an effective organization hmm. 2016 he basically had given up turned it over to bannon who it was a very smart operator played a hail mary game and it came out and it won and he won what do you make of bannon 
I don't know what to make of him. I mean, I, I, I see now that he's this. He's attempting to discredit the elections in every state. Yeah, he's, he, he's, he's, he's yeah, he's just. I mean, I mean, that's Bannon bullshit. I mean, the interesting, the nice thing about Bannon for me, of course, is that he's as clear-eyed as anyone about Donald Trump. The um, one of the few people who would who is able to understand Donald Trump in, in not in, in and to point out um, the. Trump's flaws in Bannon's telling are not only more vivid, but more hilarious than than in anyone else's telling. Um, this is what I don't get, Michael. Like with Trump and with Bannon, it, it, it's somehow they're treating really kind of profound issues like the future of the country, the Constitution, as if it was some kind of game, some kind of nihilist game in which they can just be performative and enjoy it and primarily hurt the people they really hate. And you know, I think, it. yes, no, I think for Bannon, I think that there is an, he's working out an animosity and it's an animosity directed at, at liberals, at whatever this, you know, notion of the elites are. It's a class-based right. um, battle that he's fighting. Although having said that in my fairly now long experience with, with, with Steve, he is most happy spending time with billionaires, but just also, one but, of those but, but other billionaires also can resent the educated elites that are in the media and and controlling major cultural institutions, universities, all the rest of it. There's a and the what you what yes, I get yes, right now course. is that basically these are tribes that are motivated primarily by hatred of the other tribe. That once you've got that hatred up and running, and I think Biden is providing lots of evidence for them to hate them even some more who knows where that anger will end up and that's what trump chapter what they recognize is that the same people that despise them also despise trump therefore this is not really even about trump it's about a, a, a cold civil war in which one tribe is determined to defeat the other and yet neither side is strong enough well to defeat i think the it's other. i think it's a Yes, I think that's true, but I think it is also about Trump, uh, and not, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't necessarily join those things. They may be they, they're kind of exclusive, but there is something about Trump as a performer that has captured the imagination of lots and lots of people. And I think that's separate from the the class and ideological and cultural biases here. I, I think it's just that this is a performer who's who seems fun, who seems to be having a good time to be, you go to a Trump rally and, and, and that's a celebration. I mean, he is, so, so he becomes more like a pop star than a politician. And, and I think that there's so many people in this country who are, for whom politics has no emotional resonance whatsoever. And Trump provides that emotional resonance. Partly so my, because he's not political. There's nothing political about the guy. Unpack that a little bit more. Like, what, it, what you mean? He's he doesn't have a political agenda as such, except hating these fucking liberals. He doesn't have. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't have a political agenda. He doesn't speak in political language. He doesn't do things that a politician would do. So, in any way, philosophically, temperamentally, sexually, religiously, physically, he he is at a 180 degrees from what a traditional politician should be. Sometimes that works. If you look at someone like Reagan, for example, or even Boris at this point, who's Boris is also a bit of a function of the media performance, and he's not like other politicians in that sense. He has that a celebrity kind of appeal. And to some extent, Obama had a bit of that too, a little celebrity. No, that's always, sense. yes. Yes. So charisma, you can call that or what, whatever, except I, that all of those other guys ultimately at some point level show up at the office um and <laughs> and so remember trump doesn't do that there's no office there's nothing he is not doing no, he is not, not doing any of the functions of a of executive leadership it's just gone nothing don't bother me he might as well be a senator it was one of the the i i think the funny among the many funny bits in 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 in, in my book is to point out that the Oval Office was always filled with people. I, I mean, it was I, at, at any, there were probably, there's probably no point in which there are less than 15 people ever in the Oval Office and other people crowd in and it's a bus station. It's just Trump holding court. People coming in, they're listening. He goes off on anything. It doesn't matter what it is. And it's certainly not, it's certainly not related to 
what kind of legislation we are going to pass and how are we going to do this? So you think he's going to lose next time because of the demographics, because of the experience. They want us to go through all that again, and I, I presume. But nonetheless, he'll be the nominee. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot that can happen. I mean, right. he could die at any moment. There's the other thing about him. The man, I mean, he looks great right now. I still totally, saw totally, no. no he looks I a lot better than he did at the end. I mean, for, I was, what, what yeah. is he thought? What is it? Uh, <laughs> I was, I, I sat as close as our knees touching, and I thought, my God, this guy looks good. Maybe that's why people love him, too, because he does everything they do, and it's wrong, and he's still going strong. That whole COVID <laughs> business is really quite remarkable in a way. He does have something, some kind of genius that, that we sort of have to understand, even if it absolutely... The devils. So, what are you, are you doing? Another one? You, do, you must right now. I mean, another book. You, is that your another Trump book? No. I mean, I hope to. to what God do you mean? That no. I don't have to do another Trump. <laughs> your public book. demands. Um, but I do have another book coming out in October, which is a collection of essays. So you're next, you're gonna you're gonna do a collection of essays. What's it called? Too famous. And what does that refer to? What are you? What are you? Yeah, you know, uh, it's just about every egomaniac in the world, and every person who has um, gone over the top, and and who has always inevitably been destroyed because of it. Right. Prince Harry comes to mind. Maybe I don't know who's in there. Who are you? Who, which one? Who would you cover? I mean, it, how long does it go? How how many years does this cover? How far does it go? Uh, uh, twenty years, and but with a with a variety of new stuff also. So there's the tr the whole the Trump cast of characters, Giuliani, Jared. There's a standalone Bannon piece, which I haven't published before. But then it goes back, goes to the early days of Andrew Cuomo. There's a, a piece that I'm always been fond of that I did on the Gore campaign. Well, there's some Ale you... stuff. There's Bor There's my Boris stuff. There's I have two Boris pieces. Really? Um, Tell me about what you, um, did you, yeah. went, you went to see him and, and write about him? Boris Johnson? Yeah, no, I, I, mean, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've known Boris for a long time because he was really? actually, I first met him when he, I, I first met him yeah, almost 20 years ago when he got me to write for The Spectator. And then I did the first, certainly the first piece in the U.S. about Boris in Vanity Fair, which I went and we hung out together in some hilarious set of hilarious situations, looking for Boris's pants and his uh, under the cushions of the couch in the in the house with the kids and et cetera, et cetera. How do you compare him with Trump as a figure? How Not at, I mean, I guess you could you can compare him in some sense that people are looking for figures who are who who are fun working outside of political, of tried political traditions. But beyond that, I mean, Boris is a is an exceptionally smart person and a, and a very goal-driven, I mean, he is, I don't think he's that, he doesn't happen to be that ideologically driven, but he is certainly driven by, by a certain conservative or certain Tory temperament or standard. And also, Boris is a writer, and I think a, quite a good writer, which has always interested me. He's uh, a journalist that became a politician. I mean, that's right. So, I, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I, I don't... Um, I'm standing outside of British politics. I, I actually like Boris. I'm very fond of him too myself. But, and I also find what he's doing to be quite interesting. And it frustrates me how badly it's been covered. Let me ask you a, a couple of just closing questions. Like, what are you reading right now? What, is there any particular sites or magazines or, uh, I know magazines don't exist, but, or TV shows or things that uh, we're missing that you've noticed that no, other people I, might no, not have? I, I don't think so. I'm at a loss. I read a lot of books now. TV, I think I've seen everything on TV, so I'm always looking for some something, somebody, something I've missed. What did you think of White? Can I ask you what you thought of White Locust? A locust? I, yeah, I didn't, yeah, I didn't locust. like it, really. I, I okay. mean... I mean, I, I watched it and it was and it was diverting, but it seemed like a one joke thing to me. Although, as I said, I did watch it from beginning to end. So, so um, it didn't do too. It, it, it kept your attention at least. It did. It was very colorful. The pictures were great. So I, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't read. I don't read the New Yorker. Or I don't read. I guess I read. I do read the New York Times, but quickly. Here's, here's one thing that's puzzled me about you a little bit: is that you, you've been really mean to people in print. I mean, you have been quite nasty to lots of people and yet 
everyone seems to forgive you and then call you up and talk to you. Is it just your indefatigability, your your refusal to actually go away? Is it your is it the sense that this is your job? Of course, you're going to write a takedown of somebody. But I remember when you did it to me, and it was really quite hurtful at the time, even though I'm a big boy. But what's your secret? I, I, I don't have a secret. I don't know. I always think when people talk, I think, why are they talking to me? But on the other hand, I usually go into all of these things with a, with a good feeling. I, I, I don't feel mean. And I often write a piece, and I think that's, that's a pretty complimentary piece. And then Mm -hmm. it turns out to be the exact opposite of that. And then I, so I know, and I've written many pieces, which I've kind of thought, I thought, geez, I mean, even when I wrote my Murdoch book, which Murdoch hated and has not spoken to me since and has vilified me all over the place and and haunted me and gone after my, had a hand in, well, I don't know, my personal life, et cetera, et cetera. But I would have said it was, it was a, (laughs) was a very positive book about him. So he felt mm-hmm. differently. So I don't know. I feel and, and I feel bad about that piece that I wrote about you. It's okay. So it's, I it's don't know why. Ago. It's, <laughs> I, know. Um, I think whenever, yeah, whenever anyone goes after someone's just personal uh, failings, it's always a little just nothing to do with their profession. But anyway, I don't care. Uh, life is long and journalism is nasty. And it's part of the process, I think, of a democratic society. And I want us to be more resilient in the face of criticism instead of this extraordinary fragility that everyone seems to assume these days. I think we all need to butch it up a little bit to, be, to put it in a <laughs> particularly homosexual kind of way. Still, you know, I'm, I mean, Nick Denton once said to me that I was one of the inspirations for Gawker. And I thought, what a horrible thing. I, yes. I, I mean, Horrifying. I mean, that's terrible, I said. <laughs> but Nick Denton regrets that too now right i mean he's chilled and mellowed and i think feels very complicated feelings about what he did at corker yes no i, th- I think that, that is true and i think that and he seems out a lot of happier. control and he seems just a lot happier now that he's not doing that shit yes um, well michael i just want to thank you for taking this time i'm looking forward to your book too famous is coming up really enjoyed your trilogy i expect and demand actually that if Events come to pass as you predict that you will produce another one at some point because you won't be able to resist it. But thanks so much for coming on. I really enjoyed chatting this through with you. I think I understand no, no, Trump this, a little this better. Was, this, this was very enjoyable, terrific. And we should do this offline whenever you have. Yeah. Next time um, I, I'm... Whenever you you're out yourself, in the, yeah. You're out in the Hamptons, aren't you, right now? That's that's. Is that where you are? No, I am... I mostly I actually I just came back this morning okay. into the city because I have a I have a first grader who has to start started school. You you are a a father at quite a quite a not, how do I say this right at an unusually old age in terms of yes uh, and not only do I have a first yes not only do I have a first grader but I have a three month old too. So well, Michael. The genes will go on. (laughs) And uh, good for you. And I look forward to the next book. And thanks so much. And and from us, next week, we have Ross Douthat, who's coming on. He and I are going to talk about his book about Lyme disease, which he's been struggling with for quite a while. But also, I'm going to tackle him on the latest critique of his in the Bulwark, critique of him and his position in the Republican Party. And also, Ross, of course, is an old friend, so we may even talk about God at some point if it doesn't drive all of you completely nuts. Michael Wolf, fantastic to have you. See you around. Andrew, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, everybody. <laughs>